Bibles now, if you would please, and open them to Philippians chapter 3. And tonight I want to go into the second part of a message I began last week on the subject, Heaven's Colony. In John chapter 14, Jesus was just a few hours away from going to the cross. He was about to be crucified, and in his last hours he gathered his disciples together and he gave them his final parting words. In the 14th chapter, he told them not to be troubled because he was going to prepare a place for them. And even though he was on his way to the cross, that they needn't be sad about that because he would die, but then he would arise from the grave. He was going back to his father, and he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be also. So Jesus was going to begin work on a place that was perfectly suited for his people. So he was leaving his disciples behind with the hope that he would come back and that he would take them to their heavenly home. And so in John chapter 17, he began to pray to his heavenly father. He prayed about troubling days that were ahead, the times that the disciples would face. He prayed for their comfort. He prayed for their strength. He prayed for their witness as they would preach the gospel of Christ. And then he said something about their citizenship. In John 17, these are Jesus' last words about the citizenship of his followers. He said, they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And in the third chapter of Philippians, Paul says essentially the same thing, only he says it in different words. He says, for our conversation, our citizenship, that means, is in heaven. And that's the subject tonight. We're a colony of heaven. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We live here. We are sojourners. We're just traveling through this life, waiting for the time that Jesus comes back again. So we're going to read Paul's words in the closing part of chapter 3. If you'd stand with me, please, we'll read verses 20 and 21. And our subject of the message will be the first part of verse number 20. For our conversation is in heaven... From whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for those who have come to hear the word tonight, and we thank you for this wonderful passage and the just the good news that we have citizenship in heaven. We have a heavenly home and that Jesus is coming back to this earth to take us there, and we look for that day. It's our great hope, Lord. So bless in the service tonight as we talk about your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. The opening words of verse number 20, For our conversation is in heaven. Those are written as a conclusion to Paul's statements in this third chapter. And in his writings, he's very fond of referring to our Christian life as a walk. He says in Romans chapter 6 that we should walk in newness of life. He says in Romans chapter 8, walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. He tells us in Romans 13 to let us walk honestly. In Ephesians chapter 4, he says, walk worthy of the vocation wherewith you are called. And those are just a few of the many times throughout Paul's writings that he talks about the Christian life in that way. And right here in Philippians chapter 3, verse number 17, he says, Mark them which walk, so as ye have us for an example. 
And so the conclusion of these verses coming down to the end of chapter 3 is that we are to walk in a certain way. We're to live our lives in this world as citizens of heaven. For our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven. In the world, but not of the world. We're a colony of heaven. And so our lives should be lived as a good reflection on the place that we call home. Last week, I began this message by pointing out that even though our citizenship is elsewhere, we still have certain responsibilities towards the government under which we live. And so we talked about, uh, in last week's sermon, the responsibility to human government. Uh, God is the one who instituted human government, and God says that government is for our good. We may not like the government that we live in, we may not like our leaders, but the Bible's command for those who are Christians, even living under a bad government, is they are to be good citizens of the society of the government under which they live. Now, I don't want to spend too much time going over the same points that we talked about last week, but there are three imperatives that we discussed about living under human government. The first was that we are to pray for those who are in authority. Next, we are to honor those in authority. And thirdly, to obey those in authority. Even if you don't like the leaders, the Bible says that we are to pray for them because God is the one who ordains human authority. Pray that our leaders will govern rightly. Pray that they will accept the responsibilities that they have well and that they'll serve our country in the right way. The Bible says to honor those that are in authority. They deserve the respect of their office. And any time that a Christian does not respect authority, he brings reproach upon the name of Christ. And the Word of God also says to obey those that are in authority because the human laws under which we live are for the good of society. We just can't live without law. And God has ordained law. And if you really look closely into it, most of the laws that we live under are really a reflection of the divine law that God has given. And so the only time that a Christian could ever refuse to obey the law is when the laws of our government come in conflict with God's laws. So I thought it would be good that we studied that particular part of it because I've been asked repeatedly, uh, what do we do as Christians when we're living under a government that it seems that just year after year... uh, Things are going the wrong way. We're getting further and further away from things that we stand for. So what are we to do? Well, I just want to remind you once again that neither Christ nor the apostles ever taught that it's the church's responsibility to reform the government. It is our job to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And by preaching the gospel and bringing people to salvation so they understand what God wants them to do, that will in turn turn our government around. And that's really why we need to pray for our leaders. It's why we need to witness to people so that every person that we make a Christian in the United States will help us to have a better government. So that's what Paul has to say about it. But I want to move on from that, and I want to speak about uh, some other aspects of being in heaven's colony. So we're going to turn our uh, focus away now from our responsibility to human government. And next I want to talk to you about the realm of Christ's kingdom. We're colonists of heaven, but we're also living in Christ's kingdom upon this earth. Now, there's coming a day when Christ will rule in a physical kingdom here, but until Christ comes, we are living in his spiritual kingdom. Now, it's remarkable, I think, that even though we're in three different studies in the Bible, three separate books, 
that it seems like we keep coming down or converging on the very same themes in all three of those studies. Now, we're studying the Sermon on the Mount and the book of Matthew on Sunday mornings and Revelation on Sunday nights. And, of course, here we are in Philippians on Wednesday nights. And all of those, everything that we're studying there is all about life in Christ's kingdom in some way or another. Now, especially the Sermon on the Mount, we know that Jesus addresses this because he's teaching the people about living in his kingdom and what that's all about. And he's telling them how we should conduct ourselves on a daily basis as being a part of Christ's kingdom. Well, for sure, we know this, that it must be a much different way than the people of the world live in this worldly kingdom. Because the scripture says that we're salt and light in the world. We're to be different. And when we're not different, we're neither salt nor light. And the Bible tells us that we're good for nothing but to be cast out. So what then is the difference in living in one kingdom or the other? Well, let me give you uh, three differences in being a part of Christ's kingdom and being a part of the world's kingdom. First, we have a different king. We have a different king that we live under. Now, if you live in a kingdom, there's a king that rules over you. You owe your allegiance to the king. We could say that Satan is the king of the world's kingdom, and so people in this world owe their allegiance to Satan. Now, there are some people who are just overtly Satan worshipers. I mean, they really do have churches and so forth and that worship Satan. And people say, well, yeah, I'm a Satan worshiper. But for the most part, people won't admit that they are card-carrying members of Satan's kingdom. Uh, nobody that you're going to go up to is going to say, well, yes, I happen to be a Satan worshiper. You know, we have all these Christians around, but I thought that I would just worship Satan. People don't say that, and Paul knows that they don't think that way. Uh, most people think that they're pretty good people, and so they're not going to admit that they're Satan worshipers. And so Paul puts this in another way, which really amounts to the same thing, only he says it in a different way. If you look back up there at verse number 19, he says, Whose God is their belly? In other, world, other words, the, the people that are in the world's kingdom are selfish people. Their God is self, and their God is pride. Isn't that just like Satan? And that's exactly what Satan is. I mean, these are people that are in the world that live for the purpose of fulfilling their lust. They live for themselves, and it's always been that way. But I don't think it's been any clearer, any more demonstrable than what we see in our world today and what we have just a simply me-first society. I mean, it's always think about me first. It's always about me. Advertisements are all geared that way. Indulge yourself. You deserve this. Spend your money here. I mean, this is for you. And you can always tell who a person's God is by how they spend their money, how they spend their time, and where their energy goes. Now, most people are, even Christians, are so burdened with debt that when you preach about tithing, it seems like a foreign language to them. They can't even... They can't contemplate that. It doesn't process when you talk about tithing and giving to the Lord. Uh, When there's church work to be done, people just shy away from that, and nobody has time to do the Lord's work. When it comes to putting in our energy to do something, people don't have that anymore because they spend all their energy in some type of recreation, in some sports activity, and they're just simply worn out, and they can't make it to church. Who really is your God? I mean, that's the question here. 
Uh, we, we, I've preached about this before, that there, but there are four T's that are a very quick reference guide to tell you who your God is. What do you think about? What do you talk about? Where do you spend your time? And where do you spend your treasure? Think, talk, time, treasure. Four T's that will help you to define who your God really is. And when all four of those, or any combination thereof, comes to the place that what you want to do is satisfy yourself, then you have identified who your God is. That tells you who your king is. So you don't have to say, I'm a Satan worshiper. If you're a self-worshiper, it's one and the same thing. Now, being a Christian, though, is different. I mean, if you've been born of God, you have a different king. Your allegiances are different. And so who is it then that dominates your thinking? Who dominates your time and your talk and your treasure? Who is that? Well, if you're a Sermon on the Mount type of Christian, then you would say, well, that's Christ. He's the one that I want to talk about. He's the one that I, I want to think about. He's the one that, that I really want to know about. I want to spend time with him in prayer. I want to learn from his word. I want to bring him my tithes and offerings. My treasure goes into the Lord's work. And that's really the whole difference. It's really the amount of God consciousness that you have. Now, we know that Paul speaks to us about examining our lives to see if we are truly in the faith. Well, if you're going to do that, what are the kinds of things that you're going to examine that will be your evaluation about whether you're really in the kingdom of God? I mean, wouldn't it be the very things that we're talking about here? Time and talent, or time and, and treasure and what you think about, all of that. Isn't that the way that you evaluate yourself to see if you're a Christian? And if you evaluate yourself and you find out that you spend more time in this other thing, you spend more time thinking about other things, you spend your treasure and your energy, everything else on other things, then you know that you have a problem about whether you're truly in the kingdom of God. You have to seriously consider whether you are really a Christian. And basically, folks, that is exactly what Jesus was teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. He told the people how Christians act and live, what is the identifying characteristics, what are the markers of people who are in the kingdom of God. Now, we're used to saying all the time, well, somebody has made a profession of faith, and so we tell them, once saved, always saved, and we put all that emphasis right up there in front on the once saved, and when we really should be asking, are you really saved? Did you really get what you think that you got? And if you don't have any evidence of it in your life, then chances are you are not in Christ's kingdom. So we all have to ask ourselves a question. Who is really our king? Where do we spend those four T's? Now we have a different king, and secondly then, we have different laws. Now I, I don't mean that we no longer live by the laws of the state. We've already discussed that. We talked about that last week. When you become a Christian, you don't stop obeying the law, but rather you become more acutely aware of the law. And that's because you never want to have any hint of impropriety in your life. If you're a businessman, for instance, you you live by an expected code of ethics. You have a way that you live so that you're honest in all of your dealings. You know, years ago... Uh, people used to say it this way. They, they, they'd talk to somebody, they'd, they'd enter into a contract, and they would say, my word is my bond. Now today, if somebody tells you their word is their bond, you say, well, fine, I'm glad to know that. Thank you very much. But let's get our lawyers together, and let's sign a contract here that will bind you up every which way from Sunday so I, don't make sure, I make sure that you don't cheat me. There's a different standard that Christians live by. Our lives are to be ordered differently. 
I mean, there has to be an essential difference in the way that we conduct ourselves. And it really isn't difficult. I mean, we're not talking about major, major things here. It can show up in just the very simple things that you do in your life. It's like when you go to the store and the clerk gives you back the wrong change. If the clerk short changes you, what do we all do? We say, well, you know, I was supposed to get $5 change and you only gave me $2 change, so where's my other $3? But how many people do you find on the opposite end of that? The clerk makes a mistake and instead of getting back $3 in change, they get back $5 in change. And so they turn to the clerk and say, oh, you made a mistake. Let's let you take this other $2 back. That's yours. That's not mine. That's what a Christian does. And I think it also shows up in other ways. It may show up in very practical ways like this, that, you know, people in their work today, and most people, especially on a public job, they, they do what's required of them, and they don't do anything more. I will do my job. I'll figure out what my job description is. I will do my job. And if I see something over here that needs to be done, if it's not my job, don't ask me to do that. I don't want any part of that. I'll just do my job. It's, I'll do my business and let somebody else do that. Let me give you an example of this. Um, I don't like to use myself an example, but, but I can just tell you something that I used to do when I was in business many, many years ago. Uh, I owned a construction company, and when I was hired, I was hired to come in and do one part of the job. I was supposed to do this one particular thing. Well, there were many times when I would go out to start a job And I would find out that the engineer that was there before me had made a mistake. And so instead of letting that mistake go, which I knew would harm the next person who came after me who may not see what that mistake was, that there were many, many times that I would spend my own time and money to correct that so it just didn't mess up somebody else. Now, what that did for me... I mean, I thought that was the ethical thing to do. And what that did for me was it kept me in business. I never had to advertise. Rarely did I ever have to look for any work because there was a reputation there. There was honesty and integrity. And I wanted my work to be good enough so that when somebody followed me, they didn't have to clean up my mess and take care of my mistakes. You see, that's just living under a different set of principles for a Christian. Now, Jesus put it this way in the Sermon on the Mount, and and I would call this a principle of forbearance. He says, but I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if any man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go with him a mile, go with him twain. He's speaking there about just a different way of living. It's living under the laws of Christ's kingdom and not the law that says, I've got my own problems, I'm going to worry about my own problems, and if you've got a problem, you worry about it. I'm not concerned with your problems. Now, we go on then to a third consideration about the realm of Christ's kingdom. We have a different king, we live by different laws, and then also we have different rights. We live in a nation of rights. I mean, if there's one thing fundamental to being American, it's guaranteed, our guaranteed individual rights. And sometimes, some ways, I should say, it's, it's hard for us to even think about as Americans living in a kingdom and trying to compare the two things. And that's because in America, the government is the people. I mean, basically, we decide what our rights are. 
Now, those that we elect to leadership sometimes forget that, and they govern as if they're the ones who give the rights, but it's the American people that give the rights. So we set our own standards, and the majority guarantees the rights, and so we live by these different privileges. And Americans are very, very concerned about their rights. And it comes to the place that if my rights trample on your rights, that's okay because these are my rights. And so we become, have become a very litigious society. People are suing everybody else because of their rights. Now, that's one form of rights. In a kingdom, though, the king is the one who grants the rights. You see, there, there really aren't any inherent rights that you have in a kingdom. There's nothing that you can demand because the king is the one who's the ruler. He's the one who grants the rights to the citizens. Now, there are, of course, different types of monarchies. There's a constitutional monarchy, and that's where the king is more or less a figurehead. And the, the people are still the ones who actually control the government. But the purest form of a monarchy is an absolute monarchy. And that's where all power is vested in the king, and the king is the one who makes the rules. Now, when that person is a bad king, then we change the terminology a little bit, and we say, well, that person is a dictator. Now, interestingly enough, the thing about living in a monarchy is that there are varying degrees of freedom depending upon the disposition of the monarch. And so what people really don't understand is that in the spiritual world, they're living under a dictatorship. Now, they're, in the, they're always talking about their freedom and talking about uh, free will and things like that, but people that are in the world's kingdom are under a dictatorship, and what they do is they walk lockstep with Satan. The Bible says that Satan has his dominion, and so this world is dominated by Satan. There's no such thing as this, this whole idea of free will. Now, I don't want to get off in that argument, but there, I mean, there's some ways that we can discuss that and say, yes, there is free will, but really our will is enslaved to sin. Any decision that we make is bound by a sinful nature. But there's some people who think that the highest, loftiest principle that God will always uphold, he always wants to make sure that everybody has freedom of choice, and so you must have free will. Now, there's really a concept that you're going to have to take the Bible and show me where the Bible says anything like that, because the Bible doesn't say anything like that at all. God's not really concerned about your free will, because God knows exactly where your will will always lead you. Your will, if you're lost and you're in Satan's kingdom, will always lead you to one place, and that's the fiery pit of hell. And so those that are under Satan's dominion then are in a dictatorship. Everything is bad in this kingdom. There are no upsides to it. Everything is bad. And as I said, there's only one place and one place only that people in Satan's kingdom go, and that's into hell. But what we also need to understand is that God is neither running a constitutional monarchy. God is an absolute monarch. But we don't call him a dictator. And the reason that we don't is because he is running a kingdom that operates in perfect goodness and righteousness. There, there's no oppression in his kingdom. Everything that's in Christ's kingdom is only the best. It's the best of everything. Now, in Ephesians, the very best of everything is summed up this way. It's in terms like the riches of his grace and the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints. Find that in Ephesians chapter 1. And so that means our salvation, our 
deliverance from hell, the inheritance of all things that belong to Christ. That's what we have in Christ's kingdom. So, there's no downsides to living in his kingdom. But we notice something, that when Paul speaks about living in the kingdom of Christ, he never talks about living in freedom, only in the sense. He speaks of living in freedom only in the sense, in one respect, he's free from Satan. He's free from the law of sin and death. He's free from that law that says or binds you to eternal death because of sin. Now, aside from that, how does Paul describe living in Christ's kingdom? He calls himself a slave, but he's a willing slave. He asks for nothing else but the position of a slave. Here's what Paul says in Romans 1, verse 1. He, he gives his customary type of greeting, as he does in all of his letters. In Romans 1, 1, he says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. Now, the word servant there is the Greek word doulos. This is what Albert Barnes comments on this term. This is what he says. The proper meaning of this word servant, doulos, is a slave, one who is not free. It expresses the condition of one who has a master or who is at the control of another. It is often, however, applied to courtiers or the officers that serve under a king because in an eastern monarchy, the relation of an absolute king to his courtiers corresponded nearly to that of a master and a slave. Thus, the word is expressive of dignity and honor, and the servants of a king denote officers of a high rank and station. It is applied to the prophets as those who were honored by God or especially entrusted by him with office. And so you see there that far from Paul calling himself a slave in the sense that he's just been beaten into submission, he considers being a slave in Christ's kingdom to be the greatest honor that could be bestowed upon him. He calls himself a slave of Christ, not because it's oppressive, but because Christ has done something for him. Now, all of the apostles use this term. Peter used it, James used it, uh, Jude used it in their epistles. They talk about being slaves of Christ. But the wonderful blessing of being Christ's slave is that he doesn't treat us as slaves. The scripture says he treats us as dear children. He says, or the Word of God says, that we we are adopted into his family. Now, this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And then also in Galatians, he speaks more clearly to this. He says, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of the Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Wherefore, thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Howbeit then, when ye knew not God... Ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. Then listen to what Jesus says in John 15. He says, Ye are my friends, if ye do whatsoever I command you. Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. So that's the wonderful thing about living in Christ's kingdom. 
Satan's kingdom is slavery of the worst sort. It has no positives. I said there are no upsides to living in Satan's kingdom. The more that you do, the worse that it gets. There's condemnation that's heaped upon condemnation. But when you live in Christ's kingdom, it's different. Because the more that you do, the better it gets. Because rewards are heaped upon rewards. So Christ is this absolute monarch who reigns supreme. His servants do not decide their rights. God gives them their rights and their privileges. All of that's been granted by God. Now, we have been given, as Scripture says, adoption. And so that means that we have something that no other people have. And what is it that God gives us that no other people have? It is the right that we have to come into the presence of the King. Now, surely, if you've looked at Philippians 2, or 3, rather, verses 20 and 21, you have to see that Paul is building towards this. This is where he's going. We're looking for the Savior to come, and he is going to bring us into God's presence. He'll bring us into the presence of the king. But not only do the scriptures teach that we're brought into the future presence of the king, but it also says that we can come into his presence right now. Now we can step into the throne room of God. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, verse 18, For through him we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. So access to the Father has been granted to those who are in Christ's kingdom. Nobody else has that kind of access. Nobody has the right to approach God unless they come to Jesus Christ in faith. Now, folks, that is why we pray in the name of Jesus. It's because access is granted only through Jesus. And so that means that those that are unbelievers have no right to call upon the name of God. In fact, those who try to be charitable, those who want to be inclusive, they don't want to exclude anyone, and so when they pray, they are afraid they're going to offend someone if they use the name of Jesus Christ. They are not children of the kingdom of God. The Bible, I think, teaches that Even to attempt to call upon the name of God without Jesus Christ is nothing but blasphemy. And so when there are preachers that are all over the country that say things like, well, there are other ways that you can get to God. Uh, There's validity in all religions. Uh, All people are approaching God. They're just coming a little bit different way. They've got a different way to come to God. That's basically Oprah Winfrey, Winfrey theology. Everybody can come to God. They just have a different way of getting there. Well, anybody who says such a thing is trampling under their feet the blood of Jesus Christ. If the sacrifice of Christ is not the thing that's necessary to bring us to God, then why did Christ die? What's the value of his blood if we can come to God without Christ? The truth of the matter is there is no privilege of access into the Father unless you are a child of God by faith, unless you are a bond servant in Christ's kingdom. So that's what we are. We're living in the world, but we're not of the world. We're citizens of heaven. We're a colony of heaven. We're passing through. We're sojourning here in this life. We're looking for the day when Christ comes again. And so we're traveling right on through like pilgrims, And we're looking for that city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. So surely what Paul is trying to get across to us is that if that's what we're doing, if we're a colony of heaven, then we can't walk as citizens of the world. Citizens of the world are different. I mean, just like the customs of 
One country changes as you go from one to another, so a Christian person lives under a different custom. Now, let me close with this thought tonight. We've got more to go on this subject. We're going to come back to this in a few weeks, and we're going to talk about it some more. But let me finish with this. We've been living in California for right at 12 years now. Have any of you ever noticed my wife's accent? She's been living here for 12 years, and not much has changed. Anybody ever noticed Patsy's accent? I think Dalton's been living here for, what, close to 20 years? And if you listen to Patsy or you listen to my wife, they retain the flavor of the place that they came from. Now, as I think about that, that reminds me exactly of the way that a Christian ought to be. If we're not of this place, if we are living in a foreign place, then what we want to do is to retain the custom of the country that we're from. We want to talk and act and sound like we come from another place. If our citizenship is in heaven, which the Bible teaches that it is by faith in Christ, then we want to live every day of our lives so that we reflect well on the country of which we are citizens. Now, if you're a citizen of this world, then you're going to act like the world, and that never, that never magnifies Christ. But if we retain the custom of Christians that we walk according to that heavenly colony, that heavenly place in which we live, that's pleasing to Christ, and that makes us, as the Sermon on the Mount says, salt and light in the world. So Paul's conclusion in this chapter starts with the word for in verse number 20. For our conversation is in heaven from whence we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, friends, Jesus is coming back. He's coming back from heaven. And when he comes back, the question will be, can he identify you as a servant in his kingdom? Are you living like a citizen of heaven while being in this colony on earth. That's what he's going to determine when he comes back. And he'll call all of those who are true believers, who are true citizens of his kingdom, out of this world to go home to be with him. That's what we're looking for. We're looking for the blessed appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as Paul says, and we'll get into it a little bit later, he'll change our vile bodies to be made like unto his glorious body. That's what we're looking for. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and for the opportunity to speak to your people tonight. And Lord, as we're studying these three great different texts in both Matthew and in Revelation and Philippians, uh, we just ask you, Lord, that this would be always on our mind. How do we live and act in this world? As Christians, what do we do? What kind of testimony should we have? And we know it's all building towards Jesus coming back to take us home to a place of perfection. And so, Lord, we want to live as much as we can like the Lord Jesus Christ right here in this world today. Bless our people. We thank you for those who've come this evening. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's please.